but uh, overall, God is doing some wonderful things in building his kingdom here. And seeing what he's doing here at the Off-Island Church is, is part of that, and we just rejoice in seeing God at work. I want to start this morning with a quiz. Now, you might be saying to yourself, hang on a minute. School has hardly even started, and it hasn't started. And besides that, I'm a substitute teacher-preacher, so what on earth do I think I'm doing giving you a quiz? But uh, I sympathize with your uh, reservations, but nonetheless, we're going to take a quiz. I, I will concede this point, though. This, this will not go towards your final grade, okay? We're not going to keep track of the, uh, of the grades that you get on it. But it's actually a very simple quiz, four questions. And each of the questions will contain a quote from the Bible, straight from the New International Version. And all you have to do is either in your own head, if you can keep track of the answers to it, or in the notes there on your bulletin, you can write down what uh, the answer is to each of these questions. Here's the first one. To whom did God say these words? I will so increase your descendants that they are too numerous to count. Don't say it out loud. Just write it down or register it in your brain. Question number two. About whom did God make this promise? I will surely bless him. I will make him fruitful and will greatly increase his numbers. Number three. About whom was God speaking when he made this promise? I will make him into a great nation. Number four, whose teenage years were described in the Bible with the following words, God was with the boy as he grew up. Do you have the answers? All right, let's check them. Quote number one, I will so increase your descendants that they are too numerous to count, was spoken to Hagar, Sarah's maidservant, in Genesis 16.10. Quote number two, I will surely bless him, I will make him fruitful, and will greatly increase his numbers, was spoken about Ishmael, the son Hagar bore to Abraham, found in Genesis 17.20. Quote number three, I will make him into a great nation, found in Genesis 21, 18, was spoken to Hagar and again was a prophecy about her son Ishmael. And quote number four, God was with the boy as he grew up, is from Genesis 21, 20, and was spoken about Ishmael as he grew up in the desert. How many of you got all the answers right? Let me see your hand. How many of you got them all wrong? Okay. How many of you were surprised by the answers? Now, I admit, I've tricked you. God did make very similar promises in very similar words to Abraham and to Isaac and to Sarah. But my point is this, did you realize 
that God made these kind of promises to Hagar and to Ishmael as well. I believe that the story, the biblical account of Abraham, Hagar, Ishmael, is one that has been often misrepresented, misunderstood, and misapplied, particularly by evangelical Christians, and especially those of us who come from the West. And since we have all come to live and work in this region of the world among Ishmael's descendants, I believe it's important that we have an accurate understanding of this biblical story. So today we're going to look at the story again, look at it for ourselves, and see what really happened. The story starts in Genesis 16, and it's told almost entirely through dialogue, which is a fairly consistent pattern of Hebrew narrative. But well over half this chapter is in quotation marks, direct speech of the characters. Sarah speaks, Abraham speaks, Hagar speaks, and God speaks. And as they speak, and as they dialogue with one another, the story unfolds. Chapter begins by reminding us of a dominant fact of the ongoing story, that in spite of God's promises to Abraham to make him a great nation and a father of nations, Sarah has remained childless. The clock is ticking remorselessly. Abraham is now in his mid-80s. Sarah is only nine years younger. God has promised to give Abraham a son from his own body. Maybe you remember he came and said, may my, may my chief servant live in your sight. And God said, no, it's going to come, the heir, the promise is going to come through your own body. But still, nothing has happened to fulfill that promise. Sarah opens the chapter with a speech in verses 1 and 2. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, by the way, I know I'm going to go back and forth between Sarai, Sarah, Abram, Abraham. Uh, Halfway through the story, God changes their names, and I'm not with it enough to keep track of where I am in the story. So if I use Sarah, Sarai, you understand. Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Now, as strange as this seems to us, we need to remember that this took place in a cultural context in which both polygamy and slavery were commonly accepted practices of the day. Now, in this case, by custom, the slave girl in question would become a second wife to Abraham, but she would remain in status a slave to her mistress, Sarah. And any child born to that union would be considered legally a child of Sarah. Now, we've got to be careful not to judge them by our own cultural standards or by our more complete understanding of the revelation of God in regard to to marriage. This was common practice. If you read on in the book of Genesis, or excuse me, in, in, yeah, in the book of Genesis, you'll find the same practice happening with Jacob and his four wives. So, what's going on here? 
may not have been God's best, but certainly was acceptable in the day and age in which it took place. In fact, if there's anything remarkable about this story, it's the fact that Abraham has not resorted to this solution long since. And it could well be because of his love for Sarah that he was unwilling to take this step until she was the one that initiated it. Verse 2 goes on to say that Abram agreed to what Sarai said. Remember the promise of God, you shall have a child from your own body. So this is, in his mind anyway, in keeping with maybe this is what God had in mind. So Sarah gives Hagar to Abram as a second wife, and the plan works. It's successful. Hagar becomes pregnant. And just as they had envisioned it, this would be the fulfillment of their dreams, the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham that he would have a son from his own body and the promises of God could be fulfilled. All they had to do now was wait for nine months. The child would be born, belong legally to Abram and legally to Sarah. Don't you love it when a plan comes together? But what they had failed to reckon with is the emotional and relational havoc that their plan would cause. We're told that when Hagar realizes she's pregnant, she began to, the scripture says, despise Sarah. Now personally, I think the word despise is too strong a word for the context and, and the Hebrew word that's used here. The sense of the word is that Hagar began to treat Sarah as insignificant or less worthy of respect. It's not a dislike, it's a, I'm better than you. I got pregnant, you didn't. And I'm carrying the air of the household in my womb, and you're not. And so, on top of the inevitable jealousy that Sarah was no longer feeling, this attitude of disrespect, this power play going on in the home, which is almost inevitable, by the way, in polygamous homes, as those from polygamous homes will tell you, began to take its toll on the peace of Abram's household. And this situation becomes more than Sarah can bear. Yes, it was her idea, but she doesn't like what's happened. And so the second speech in the chapter is also by Sarah, found in verse 5. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my servant in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Well, as so often happens, when things don't go the way we want, we look for someone to blame, don't we? In this case, Sarah turns her anger against Abram. Now you say, that's not fair. This was Sarah's idea. Well, first of all, blame rarely has anything to do with logic, does it? If we're really bottom line honest. We just have to find somebody to vent our displeasure at. And on top of that, you've got to realize the bind that Abram was in. I mean, he's got to be happy that Hagar is pregnant, right? 
But how does he show that joy without arousing Sarah's jealousy and Sarah's suspicion? Anything he does is going to be treated as suspicious and as a cause for more displeasure. And so this tension in the home becomes more than they can cope with. Sadly, the next verse reflects no credit on either Abram or Sarai. Your servant is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. Abram here is not acting as the head of the home. (laughs) He is acting irresponsibly. He's saying, you take care of it. You manage it. Sarai gives in to her baser nature and begins, we're told, to mistreat Hagar. The word for mistreat literally means to humble her. Okay, You've got her, number one, playing for a larger place in the home, and Sarai's putting her in her place. At every chance she gets, she reminds her, you're the slave. You're still a slave. The baby born to you may be born to you physically, but he's mine legally. And so she starts to bring Hagar down. And we're told that Hagar finally gets to the place where she can't tolerate any longer, and she runs away. Now, I do not think that's what Sarai wanted. I know it isn't what Abram wanted. This woman is carrying his child. The heir, the promised heir of God, in his mind anyway, just left. But it's more than Hagar can do. It's her way of coping. And it's now in this uh, situation that God enters the story. It's interesting to me, this is the very first occurrence of the angel of the Lord appearing in the pages of Scripture. Now, if you trace this rather mysterious angel of the Lord, you'll find that it is actually God himself appearing to key people in the story in an angelic form. You'll see the angel of the Lord, and then in the middle of the dialogue it says, and the Lord said, and the Lord said. So it's obviously God appearing in a visible form, yet it's God himself. And it's interesting that it's it's to Hagar this Egyptian slave girl is the very first time that happens in all of Scripture. And this is what the angel said, God himself speaking. The angel of the Lord, verse 7, found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that's by the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress Sarai, she said. Then the angel of the Lord His words are very clear to Hagar. The angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. Don't run away. That's not going to solve things. Go back. And then he gives her these reassurances, these promises. The angel added, I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now with child, and you will have a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man, 
His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. Now, these words lie at the heart of much of our misunderstanding of Ishmael and of God's attitude toward him. It has led many to believe that God is pronouncing a kind of judgment or curse on Ishmael and his descendants. Now, that's a rather strange conclusion to draw in light of the fact that God spoke these words to reassure Hagar and encourage her to go back to Abram's tents. So the question is, do these words constitute a blessing or a curse? And I would answer by saying, neither one. They constitute a prophecy about Ishmael's life and about his character as a man. So the question then is, is it a positive prophecy or a negative one? Well, that's a little more difficult to answer because the words are open to different interpretations. For example, the reference to him being a wild donkey of a man, I believe, is an admiring analogy. The wild donkey, the wild ass, is a a specific species of creature known as the onager, or the wild donkey or wild ass of the Middle East. It's an animal related to the horse. Look it up in a dictionary. You'll find it's described this way. Onagers are a little larger than donkeys and are more horse-like. They're short-legged compared to horses. They have a black stripe bordered in white that extends down the middle of the back. They are notoriously untamable. So it was a creature that was known for and in the culture of the day often admired for its strength and its wild independent, untamable nature. I guess the closest I could come to it, and maybe you North Americans will relate to this, is to say he was a wild Mustang of a man. Now you say Mustang instead of donkey, all of a sudden you get a different image, don't you? You've got the wild independence, the strong character. And I believe that's what God is trying to communicate. What about the description of every man's hand will be against him and he will live in hostility? These words are also ambiguous. They could describe a state of hostility as translated here, but they may also simply be referring to a strong independence. And living in hostility can be translated living separately. Or another possible interpretation is living literally to the east of his brothers, which would be an accurate geologic or geographical reference to where Ishmael and his descendants lived in reference to Abraham's other descendants. Whatever we make of the details here, we may simply be describing the, if you will, the the ethos of the Bedouin. These men of the desert, these self-reliant 
people that choose the wild places and the outdoors and, and the way of living that uh, keeps them out there in the wilderness as opposed to a negative stereotype of someone who's always fighting with everyone else. Now, whatever we make of these details, I think it's worth pointing out that this prophecy is very similar in tone and even in language to some of the prophecies that Jacob made to his own sons in Genesis chapter 49. You may recall the passage there where Jacob is calling his sons one by one and pronouncing a blessing slash prophecy over them. Now let me read some of those. Verse 1 of chapter 49 says, Then Jacob called for his sons and said, Gather around so I can tell you what will happen to you in the days to come. Now look at this one in verse 9. You are a lion's cub, O Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down like a lioness who dares to rouse him. Skipping down to verse 17. Dan, another one of Jacob's sons, will be a serpent by the roadside, a viper along the path that bites the horse's heel so that its rider tumbles backward. And again in verse 27. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning, he devours the prey. In the evening, he divides the plunder. Do you notice the common animal analogies there and the often ambiguous references? Is this a good thing or a bad thing to be a serpent? Is it a good thing or a bad thing to be a lion? Is it a good thing or a bad thing to be a ravenous wolf? Uh, you know, it, it's kind of lost there in the culture and the translation to know exactly what uh, the prophecy means. The point I'm making is simply this. We have not gone to those prophecies in chapter 49 to cast a stereotype on all the sons of Dan or all the sons of Benjamin, the way we seem to have taken the prophecies about Ishmael and used them to stereotype an entire race of people. In fact, at the heart of this word from the Lord is a statement of great blessing that's bound up in the child's name. You shall call his name Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your, mis of your misery. The name Ishmael or in Hebrew, Yishmael, means literally, here he hears God. God hears. Yishmael. El is from Elohim. The, the, the syllable that refers to the, to the God of the universe. God hears. And that's the reassurance that God gives to Hagar. God has heard your misery. God is listening to you. And out of that encouragement, out of that reassurance... God now tells Hagar to go back to Abram's tents. And, to her credit, she responds and obeys, and the story continues in verse 13. She gave this name to the Lord, who spoke to her, You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Bir Lahai Roy, which is still there between Kadesh and Bered. Lahai Roy literally means the God who sees. Going on, so Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. She's back in the tents of Abram. The baby's born. The story continues to unfold. Now, before we leave the story, I'd like to hit the fast-forward button, run the story forward 
16 years and uh, five chapters to chapter 21. To just capture, sketch the intervening years, the child of promise, Isaac, has now been born. Ishmael, the beloved and only son of Abraham for 13 years, is rapidly being relegated to a secondary status. In chapter 21, a great party is held to celebrate the weaning of Isaac. Great occasion in the family. And on that occasion, the smoldering jealousies of the household erupt once again. At the party, Sarah sees Ishmael laughing at, mocking, or teasing Isaac. Any of you have siblings? <laughs> Ever done any mocking, any laughing, any teasing? But it was more than Sarah could tolerate. And so she comes to Abram in verse 10, get rid of that slave woman and her son. For the slave woman, her son, will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. Get rid of those two. I cannot tolerate them anymore. Now we're told that Abram was deeply troubled by this. As he would be. Ishmael was his son. His only son for 13 years. Even though he understands now that Isaac is the son of promise and he's rejoicing in Isaac, he still has a father's love for Ishmael. And yet, here again, God breaks into the story. He comes to Abraham and reassures him with these words in verse 11 to 13. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. But God said to him, do not be distressed about the boy and your maidservant. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the maidservant into a nation also, because he is your offspring. Don't be troubled about Ishmael or Hagar, God tells him. Sarah, on this occasion, is right. Isaac is the son of promise. It is time for these two sons to be separated. Do what Sarah says. Send them away. I'll take care of them. And so Abram does what he's told. <clears throat> he gets food and water together, supplies them for the journey, and sadly sends Sarah, or excuse me, Hagar and Ishmael away. Well, you probably remember the story. The trip goes badly. They become lost in the desert. Their food and their water run out, and they're literally dying of thirst. They are so desperate that Hagar, we're told, lays Ishmael in the shadow of a bush, a tree, and removes herself away. It very graphically describes it about a bow shot, as far as you can shoot a bow, because it says she, she can't bear to watch her son die. And as she sits there in desperation, the scripture tells us she began to weep. And we can picture this desperate mother weeping great sobs for her son. But then something remarkable happens. Scripture tells it simply, God heard the boy crying. Uses those very words twice, a clear reference to the name, Ishmael, God hears. And here's Ishmael crying in the desert. God heard the boy crying. God hears. And the angel of the Lord appeared again to this Egyptian woman 
and again promises to make Ishmael into a great nation. He then opens her eyes to see a well very near at hand, full of water, and the two of them are saved. And to that story, the writer adds this wonderful little footnote in verse 20. He says, God was with the boy as he grew up. He grew up in the desert, an archer, a man of the wild places, and God was with him. Let's fast forward one last time, this time almost 75 years to Abram's funeral. Found in Genesis 25, verse 8 and 9, Then Abraham breathed his last and died at a good old age, an old man and full of years, and he was gathered to his people. Listen to this. His sons... Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah near Mamre in the field of Ephron, son of Zohar, the Hittite. Clearly, there's been contact over the years, hasn't there? There's been some family reunions, particularly after I imagine Sarah died and that jealousy was laid to rest. Maybe they met at a particular oasis every year in the spring and renewed the contact. I'm using my imagination there, but I'm not using my imagination here. The two sons of Abraham came together at his death to honor their father in burial. That's the story. I think it's kind of a neat story, don't you? I think it's a story of God's grace and of God's love. Let's first of all use the story to clear up some rather common misconceptions about the story that have grown up and somehow stuck in the thinking of many. The first misconception is that Ishmael, the father of the Arab peoples, was somehow cursed by God or banished or sent into exile in shame as kind of a negative character that we're glad to see gone. The second misconception out of that is that the role of the Arabs, the Ishmael's descendants in history, is primarily a negative one that they're there to serve as a thorn in Israel's side, an enemy to harass them and to be a constant reminder of the fact that Abraham sinned way back there in Genesis 16. Maybe you've heard those kind of sermons after you read the story in Genesis 16 and say, now look at this, the Israelites are having, or the nation of Israel is having all kinds of trouble today with the Arabs. They wouldn't be having that trouble today if Abraham hadn't sinned back there in Genesis 16. So we've kind of wiped out a whole race of people and said, well, they're just there to, to, to punish Israel, to punish Abraham. And I would suggest to you this morning that neither of these misconceptions will stand up to a careful reading of either the biblical text or of history. It's clear to me in these chapters that God loved Ishmael. And he loved Hagar. He cared for Ishmael. He was with him when he grew up. He promised and then fulfilled his promise to make him into a great nation. He, yes, he says he's an independent character. He's a wild guy. He's a guy that loves the desert places. But I'll be with him and I'm going to bless him. I don't see a negative here in God's attitude towards Ishmael. And as to Ishmael's descendants, the Arabs and their place in history, the hostility between Arab and Jew is historically a very recent origin. 
And down through their history, Israel had an abundance of enemies that weren't descended from Ishmael. In fact, God simply said to them, when you obey me, I'll give you peace. When you disobey me, I'll bring enemies against you. Philistines, Syrians, Assyrians, Moabites, Midianites, Babylonians. None of these had any relationship to Ishmael. God brings enemies to punish them. That was the covenant he made with them at Sinai. And so to take the more recent events of the last generation, the last 50, 60, 70 years, and say, this is what happened, I don't think is good history. In fact, would not be rather naive to assume that if only the Arabs hadn't come on the scene, Israel would be enemy-free today. That somehow this part of the world would have remained empty waiting for that God to bring them back from exile. I don't think that's a logical conclusion that we can draw. And so to use the story of Abraham and Hagar and Ishmael and to use present events in the Middle East as a kind of moral tale expressing the uh, disobedience of Abraham and punishment for him and his descendants, I think is not good theology. Now, I'm not here this morning to talk politics, either ancient or modern. I'm simply calling us back to Scripture, asking us to take another look at an old story and see what it really says. And as we do, I think we see a remarkable thing, that this is, as I've already said, a truly wonderful story. It's a story of God's grace. It's a story of God's mercy. It's a story of God's love. My reading of the story is really rather simple. It's a story of the comprehensiveness of God's love. God loved Abraham. We all know that. Yay. God loved Sarah. Oh, yes, he did. God loved Isaac. Yay. God loved Hagar. God loved Ishmael. Made some wonderful promises to him. And my conclusion is, if God loved Ishmael, what do you think he feels about Ishmael's descendants? Do you think? Just maybe he loves them as well. It's possible, maybe even common, to come to us succumb to a simplistic good guys and bad guys view of the Middle East. We've got the good guys in the white hats and we cheer for them, and we've got the bad guys in the black hats, yaboo. Not that simple. Not that simple. And particularly, I believe we cannot go to Scripture to buttress and support those stereotypes. You see, I, I believe God cares about all the peoples of the Middle East. I believe God's heart is aching for what's happening in this region of the world right now. If God heard and saw Hagar and Ishmael, do you think he hears the mothers who are weeping for their children today? Do you think he cares about them? I also believe, and here's where I would go a step beyond what's in the newspapers today, 
I believe that God's desire for the Arabs, as well as his desire for the Jews and the Israelis, is for both of these great peoples, descended from Abraham, to come to faith in the ultimate son of Abraham, Jesus, Messiah. And that is the only hope for either race of people. And could it be that that's why God's brought you and me to the Middle East? That he wants you to be a light, a source of expressing the love of God to his people and to those he wants to bring to himself. It's not easy. There's hostility to the gospel here. There are challenges. There's another belief system. There is evil here. There's evil in the hearts of all men. It's not limited to the good guys and the bad guys. We're all bad guys by that definition, only by the grace of God and the implanting of the Spirit of God is there hope for any of us. That's my first application. That's my primary reason for preaching this message this morning from this text. Open our eyes. Let us see as God sees. Let us hear as God hears. And let us love as God loves. Let me just give you a couple of other very quick applications from this story that you can take away and think about. One is that doing things our way brings heartache. I said before that we need not accuse Abram and Sarah of great moral failure in this story. But I do, however, feel that they were guilty of a failure of faith. They became impatient with God's timetable and God's way of doing things, and so they set out to help God by doing something he had not told them to do. And they reaped the harvest of aggravation tension, and broken relationships that inevitably follows such failures. We do not have to run to the 20th and 21st century to see negative consequences of Abram's sin. We see it right away in the tension between Sarah and Hagar and Ishmael and the home. And the loss of the peace of his home over those years was the price that they paid for going ahead without God. Yes, God's grace was at work, for Hagar and for Ishmael, but Abraham and Sarah paid a price for their disobedience. And we always pay a price for our disobedience when we try and take a shortcut and help God out rather than waiting for him to deliver on his promises. The scripture says the blessing of the Lord brings wealth and he adds no trouble to it. The blessing of the Lord, that's where good comes. And when we wait for his blessing, we don't get the harvest of trouble that accompanies it the way we do when we do things our own way. Second, submitting to God brings blessing. And here, ironically, we learn a lesson from Hagar, the Egyptian slave woman. She submitted to God's instructions. She went back to Abraham and Sarah and their tents, regardless of how difficult it was. And God blessed her with a son, 
and by making that son into a great nation. Now, maybe you today are struggling with a difficult situation and you're tempted to run away. It's interesting to me that when the angel of the Lord came to Hagar that first time, he said to her, where have you come from and where are you going? She only answered part of that question. She said, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarah. She didn't have a destination. <laughs> doesn't say where she's going. She's just running. And friends, that's never God's will. God may call you somewhere different, but he never calls us to simply run away. And if that's what you're tempted to do today, I would urge you to take another look. And maybe God is calling you to do what he called Hagar to do. Go back and submit. Difficult as it is, and I'll bless you there. Hang on. Do what I've asked you to do. The final application, God sees, hears, and knows our heartaches and our dilemmas. And that's revealed in the names in this story. Ishmael, God hears. Elroy, God sees. And when God hears and God sees, he also comes and answers. Scripture says that God found Hagar in the desert. And the word found implies he was looking for her. He actively sought her out. He came to her to meet her needs. So if you find yourself weeping today, if you find yourself in a place of desperation, sobs shaking your body, cry out to God and know that he hears. If he heard Hagar out there in the desert, he's hearing you. If he sees Hagar and Ishmael out there under the desert, he sees you. And he knows you're not alone. He will deliver you. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for the scriptures. If we need to adjust our thinking, help us to make that adjustment. If we need to think some more about these things, help us to take the time to think them through, to search the scriptures and see what it says. And if we need to take this truth and apply it to our lives, one of these principles Help us to make that application, that our lives truly might be different because of this time we've spent together. In Jesus' name, amen.